Acts chapter 24. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, you wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from us to you today. <clears throat> Just a handful of verses this morning. Um, Acts chapter 24, uh, verse 24. And after some days when Felix came uh, with, his life, Drus uh, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about, that is, Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And meanwhile, he also hoped He also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him, and therefore he sent for Paul more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius uh, Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this living book, the Bible, your word. We thank you that in this world that is filled with books, there's only one that is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is the one that has been written by your Holy Spirit and the one that he illuminates in his uh, infinite majesty and power. And we've come, Lord, to be impacted once again by your word, not as we turn to it now merely academically, but as an extension, Lord, a continuation of our worship of you. We pray that you'd freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice uh, through your word, and we pray that you would use this time in studying these verses to further conform our lives after your kingdom, Lord, and the citizens of your kingdom, and conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. Thank you that that miracle is impossible for us, but it is one that you readily desire to do in each one of our lives this morning, and we pray that you would do it now through your word and all that's contained in this, your word that never returns void but accomplishes the purposes for which it was uh, sent forth, and we pray that those purposes would be worked into our lives today. We ask these things in Jesus' peerless name. Amen. Please be seated. The overarching theme of uh, the remaining chapters here in the book of Acts is God's kind of overruling uh, providence at work in Paul's life in getting him to the city of Rome where Jesus had told him that he would uh, give witness to uh, the Lord himself in Rome as, as uh, thoroughly and wonderfully as he had done in the city of Jerusalem. As Acts records, Paul uh, does get to Rome exactly as 
the Lord had promised him that he would. But the journey's a long one. It's a complicated one. It involves the final five chapters of uh, the book of Acts, and it's continued. The narrative is given to us because Paul goes through a lot of ups and downs and faces a lot of uh, circumstances in his journey from God's will in his life in Jerusalem to God's will in uh, Rome. And so we learn something from all of the things that he ran into and what God did in his life uh, in the course of all of it, is we are where we are today in our walk with God and in his uh, purpose and his plan for our life and making our way one day uh, into heaven and even into his purposes for us later in this life. There's so much to be learned. In our passage, Paul is in Roman custody in a jail in the city of Caesarea. He's being held there by a Roman governor by the name of Felix. We're told that Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, sent for Paul, verse 24, for the purpose of hearing him speak about uh, the faith in Christ. So clearly, Felix, uh, in listening to Paul, uh, has become curious about Paul and about his faith in Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah. And uh, Drusilla, as a Jewish woman, would have had some curiosity as well. We remember that Paul was just recently in the account taken into a courtroom before Felix in Tertullus, uh, a hired legal assassin endeavoring to uh, get Paul killed at the hands of the Romans by way of the charges that he brought against him. Uh, here is Felix sitting in that courtroom. He knows the kind of man that Tertullus is. And then he sees this uh, Jewish rabbi. He sees this tent maker, this Christian, stand up in the midst of it and simply deflect uh, Tertullus's arguments as if they were uh, nothing. And remember, this was a large part of Felix's life, hearings like this, people coming in, making accusations, defending one another. And, and doubtless at the end of all of it, he was uh, mightily impressed with how the Apostle Paul conducted himself in that uh, legal setting and desired to hear more from Paul, and specifically that Paul would speak to him and to his wife, Drusilla, concerning uh, faith in Christ. It helps to understand a little bit about Felix and Drusilla at this point to fully appreciate uh, what's happening here in this scene. Felix was born a slave in the Roman Empire. That was as low as you could go in the Roman Empire. Ultimately, he became a freedman, and, and then ultimately still he became a high official within the Roman Empire, uh, thanks in large part to his brother Pallas, who was also uh, born into slavery and achieved the status of uh, freedman. And uh, ultimately, he distinguished himself to such a degree that he became uh, a secretary of the treasury during the reign of Emperor Claudius. That's a very uh, high, steep ladder to climb in a short period of time that he did from the status of, of, uh, of slave to be a, a cabinet member uh, for a Roman emperor. Freed slaves Usually upon being freed, they would change their names. And Felix, when he was freed from his slavery, he chose the name Felix. And the name Felix means happy. 
and uh, this, uh, <clears throat> he wasn't going to have that happy of a life. He really lacked the character and the charisma and the gifting of his brother Pallas, and ultimately he makes a complete mess of uh, what uh, he was endeavoring to do in governing this part of the Roman Empire uh, that we know today as Israel. In the course of his reign, he's utterly dominated by greed. His uh, reign was a, a very, very corrupt one. And uh, when the rulers are, are dominated by greed, then greed and, and uh, that, that kind of wickedness then took root within uh, the whole province at that time and, and, uh, and just defiled it. it. It corrupted it, a great increase in in crime. His reign was also marked by brutality and cruelty. In fact, uh, the Roman historian uh, Tacticus wrote of him, he exercised the authority of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was given a, a position, but he never developed a character and the life experience that was necessary to be able to handle it in a proper way. In terms of sexual matters, he was completely unprincipled. He married three times. His first name, uh, his first marriage was to a woman named Drusilla as well. She was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. Most of us have heard and know enough about Roman history to have at least heard uh, their names, which gives us some idea of how uh, quickly he had ascended from the status of slave to now being bo uh, 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 wedded into these kind of of uh, families. Uh, the Drusilla that's mentioned here in our passage, that was Felix's third wife. He was smitten by her beauty. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us she was stunningly uh, beautiful. And so Felix wooed her out of her marriage that she was already in with a king by the name of Azuzus. And uh, he promised if she would leave her husband and come to him that he would make her uh, a Felix woman, a happy woman. Uh, that's about the worst come on line I've ever uh, heard. That's worse than what's your sign. I think she would have realized this guy is a loser uh, just from that attempt. But uh, at any rate, they moved forward. He made the promise that he would make her a happy woman, and then she proceeded to leave her husband under the influence of Felix, who had hired a, a Cypriot a magician uh, by the name of Atomos and uh, who began to communicate Felix's desires for uh, Drusilla and also intended to put a hex or a spell upon her uh, to bring her under the influence and the sway of Felix. And she ended up marrying Felix at the tender age of 16. Uh, concerning Drusilla, she was one of three daughters of Herod Agrippa I. Uh, her father murdered the apostle James in Acts chapter 12. Her great uncle, Herod Antipas, murdered John the Baptist. Her great grandfather, Herod the Great, ordered the slaughter of all of the babies two years and younger in the city of Bethlehem at the time of uh, Jesus' birth. And so this is quite an audience that uh, Paul has in, in front of him here and at their own desire, their own uh, request. 
Paul's response to uh, their request and their desire here is that he focused uh, on three principal things. It's a three-point sermon that he delivers, as we're told in verse 25, that he reasoned with them about righteousness, number one, self-control, number two, and then the judgment to come. First concerning uh, reasoning uh, about righteousness, it's important to notice there in verse 25 that Paul did not reason with them concerning righteousnesses, plural, or unrighteousnesses, plural, but he spoke to them about righteousness, singular. In other words, Paul did not present to them some long list of things that were right or wrong in the eyes of God. What he was speaking to them about was of the righteousness that is required by God in order to be qualified to enter into heaven. It's the same word that Jesus used in speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Jesus said, and when he, that is the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, singular, and of judgment. Jesus was telling us there that when the Holy Spirit came into the world, he would convict the world of righteousness, not of unrighteousnesses. We would think it would be the other way around, that that would be the primary concern of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest things that the Holy Spirit wants the world to know, wants you to know, wants me to know this morning is that it is a perfect righteousness that is required in order to get into heaven. That mankind, not you, not me, not anyone, gets into heaven on the basis of being better than some people or being better than even uh, most people, but that a perfect righteousness, a perfect rightness, a perfect right onness is required. Well, that creates quite a problem for all of us that in listening to something like that because we all have a problem in the light of that. And the problem is, is that the Bible declares that in our current condition at the moment, none of us is righteous uh, at all. Uh, Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous. Uh, don't protest, because Paul went on to say, no, not one. Uh, Romans 3 again, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 64, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like a filthy rag. In this vein of righteousness, Paul wrote, Romans chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Translation, Paul said the only person who would spend even a moment's time endeavoring to earn our way into heaven, to good our way into heaven, is someone who is ignorant of the fact that the standard concerning righteousness for entering into heaven is perfection. Because once a person 
realizes that the standard is perfection and that they and we are already disqualified because we have already sinned, we've been less than perfect, then we would abandon all attempts to enter heaven on the basis of our own good deeds, and we would instead begin the search to enter into heaven some other way than good works. And when a person understands that to be true, the very first point of Paul's sermon here, when we understand that to be true, uh, then uh, we, uh, the Holy Spirit will come in alongside that person's life and will be faithful then to lead us to God's solution to our problem, to our dilemma. And what is God's solution? God's Word declares that when we put our faith in Jesus, that Jesus' perfect righteousness his perfect rightness and right onness is put to our account so that when God looks at us for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, he no longer sees our unrighteousnesses. He no longer sees our sin. But what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ that now covers us and has become our identity Paul wrote in the, to the church at Rome in chapter 4, and he said, but to him, speaking of us, who does not work but believes on him, that is Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul again in the same vein in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for he that is the Father made him that is the Son who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So now again, when God looks at us as Christians or as a person who has now put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, he no longer sees my sins. I have now been clothed positionally with the righteousness of Christ, and it is that righteousness, the, the righteousness that only he possesses and only he can impart to us that now qualifies us to one day enter into heaven with our uh, history of sin. But I will never, ever be open to God's salvation until I give up all attempts to save myself on the basis of my own human effort. And a person will never give up my, our own human efforts to save ourselves until I am informed that the righteousness that is required in order to enter into heaven is perfection. And thus the Holy Spirit is come to inform us that the required righteousness for entrance into heaven is perfection so that we will cease every human effort uh, that we would attempt to make in order to enter into heaven and instead put our faith in Jesus in order to receive his righteousness. And it is at this point and in this place that Paul began with Felix and with Drusilla. And the reason that I spend so much time on this subject this morning in the sermon is because I would contend in the culture that I live in and you live in in the United States of America that the single greatest obstacle to people coming to faith in Christ, putting their faith in Jesus for salvation, 
is not their failure to acknowledge that they are sinners, but rather an unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously. I run into very few people in life who will not admit that they are sinners when they understand the proper definition of sin. But the far harder thing is to get people to view the fact that their sinful condition is serious, that it's something that needs to be addressed and it needs to be dealt with between them and God. The prevailing idea in the world today, in my opinion, is that if you work hard and you live a good life, you live a moral life, and you do more good in life than you do wrong, and you live a life that's better than most people in your family or in in the neighborhood, and you do enough good deeds, then of course you're going to get into heaven. But as Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla, and he speaks by the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament, that is to live ignorant of righteousness, that the only righteousness that's accepted in heaven is perfection. And we can only achieve that positionally uh, by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, it is so important for you to understand that related to your life. You can never make yourself good enough or acceptable or worthy to get into heaven. It's also important for us to understand this as Christians. So often we look at the United States of America today and we lament that it is post-Christian. I think it is very post-Christian. And we wonder, how do we reach the culture? How do we reach the Felixes and the Drusillas uh, today? How do we reach our neighbors? How do we reach an increasingly pagan culture? Remember Paul, when he ministered in the early church, he wasn't dealing with a post-Christian culture. He was dealing with a pre-Christian culture. And yet he didn't try and do a song and a dance. He didn't try and, and, you know, do all of these silly things that we can be prone to do, the thing that we have to become in order for the world to listen to us or sinners to listen to us and apologize for being the church or being a Christian or carrying this message and the importance for us in witnessing to people, to make them realize and to understand or certainly just to inform them of the fact that this is the righteousness that's required in order to enter into heaven. And none of this truth does us any good in terms of us being uh, effective as Christians in leading people to the Lord unless I can take it beyond listening to it in the sermon and saying, yes, I understand that, I get that, I believe in that, I realize that. But there has to come a point where we hear it often enough and we uh, desire for it to be a part of our understanding to such a degree that we are then able to personally, in whatever words we would use, to then communicate these things to the world uh, around us. Now, second, Paul reasoned uh, concerning self-control. So what he does here is fascinating. It's very straightforward, but it's very powerful. Uh, You can't be any more straightforward and powerful than Paul is here in this. Having made clear the righteousness 
that's required in order to enter into heaven. Paul then moves on to establish with Felix and Drusilla their personal guilt uh, before uh, God. If Paul was dealing with a different audience, he might not deal with the sin of uh, a lack of self-control. He might deal with a, a thousand other sins. But with them, he addresses their sin from the angle of self con- uh, a lack of self-control and uh, the, uh, the, the standard for self-control uh, biblically because both Felix and Drusilla, they were poster children for the sin of lack, con- uh, a lack of self-control in the face of sin and in the face of temptation. Whatever their flesh wanted, whatever their sinful appetites were uh, that they possessed, they simply indulged them. And if Paul, if they needed Paul to make clear to them their status as sinners in need of saviors, a savior and in need of forgiveness from God, he did it here in that part of his sermon. But Paul didn't stop there. He then went on Third and finally, to reason concerning judgment to come. That death is not the most fearsome event that lies ahead in every single one of our lives in this room and in this world. The most fearsome event that lies ahead in the lives of every single person is that one day every one of us Every person in human history will stand before Jesus in judgment, and we will either face him one day, everyone will face him, but we will either face him and face him either he will be our savior at that moment or he will be our judge. That every man and woman who rejects Jesus as their savior, no matter what their position in life may be right now, no matter how much power they have, how high they've climbed in the corporate or uh, the non-corporate ladders and so forth as becoming a Roman governor or the uh, queen of a Roman governor, that every single one of us, wherever we've been in life, whatever our position in life, will stand before Jesus as the king of the universe. And we will give an account for our lives, for our sins. Uh, Those that reject Christ will do so, uh, not Christians, but those that reject the Lord uh, and the salvation that's found in Jesus and and, and will give an account for our sins at what is known as the great white throne judgment seat of God. And that those who've refused to make Jesus their savior and, and refused God's provision for the forgiveness of their sins will then be cast, as the Bible teaches, into an eternal judgment, an eternal lake of fire. And that just as there is a penalty for crimes and for uh, uh, the committing of uh, wrongdoing in their life, in, in this life, And it must be that way in order that good would not be swallowed up by evil in this world. So too there is a penalty for sin in the life to come. But wonderfully and very importantly, it's important to also understand that God doesn't doesn't want to meet a single man or woman at that white throne judgment. If God had his way, at the moment of that white throne judgment, not a single person would step up to be judged. 
if he had his way and his desire and his will in every person's life, it would be that everyone would trust in his son for the forgiveness of sins and then as a result only one day to face the Lord as our Savior, wonderfully as our Savior, and never as our judge. And that's why God sent his son into the world so that any of us would be able to avoid that coming judgment that would otherwise come our way. Paul, uh, Peter wrote famously in his second epistle that God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. If anyone ever ends up in judgment, it will never be, be because God got his will in that person's life. It will be because that person defied the will, the will and the determined uh, desire for God for each one of us, and that is to be saved and that heaven would become our eternity. It's also important to realize that no one ever ends up in eternal judgment based upon the sins, plural, that we have committed uh, in uh, the course of our lives. Every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit uh, can be forgiven. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is a lifelong rejection of Jesus and the salvation and the forgiveness that is found solely in him. And then one day dying in that condition. That's the only sin for which there is no forgiveness. And it's cast the die then for where a person ends up in eternity. Jesus taught in John chapter 5, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That's what happens when we trust in Jesus, and, de and Jesus declares it to be so. The apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, he who has the Son has life. He do who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is known as clarity on the most important issue in our life in which we need clarity. John the Baptist declared concerning Jesus, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And what Paul preached to Felix and Drusilla here was exactly what they needed to hear. And it is exactly what every single one of us in this room and every single human being in the world needs to hear at some time in the course of our life. Uh, because these things that he spoke of, of righteousness, self-control, and judgment, these things were true not only of uh, Felix and Drusilla, but also true of each of us. Now, Felix's response is an interesting one. He, uh, his response in verse, uh, latter part of verse 25 uh, was fear. We're told that he uh, was literally, uh, he, he became uh, afraid. Felix was afraid, and the word for fear and afraid there literally means that he was terrified. Well, so far, so good. 
He ought to have been terrified in the condition that he was in. I was terrified in my uh, former condition. This tells us a couple of things concerning Felix that's important. It tells us that he still had an active and a healthy conscience at this point. He hadn't seared his conscience yet. Fear, and specifically the fear of God, is exactly the kind of response that he ought to have had in response to Paul's message. Uh, In the light of the life that uh, he had been living and he was living, The second thing that Paul's, uh, Felix's fear uh, communicates to us is that he took the things that Paul had spoken to him seriously. He didn't brush them off as some kind of a myth or a theory or some, uh, the rantings of some kind of a a religious fanatic, but he he took what Paul had said to him uh, very, very seriously. What he heard Paul declare to him concerning, from God concerning righteousness and self-control and judgment, he considered everything that he had heard Paul uh, speak to be absolutely uh, reasonable. Now, tragically, uh, fear wasn't the only response of uh, Felix to this message. You notice in verse 25, his second response was procrastination. Go away for now. Uh, When I have a convenient time, I will call uh, for you. He absolutely believed what Paul had spoken concerning righteousness and concerning self-control and judgment. But then he stops. The thing that keeps him from trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins and and adding his faith to what he knew to be true and, 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 and trusting then in the Lord and then being born again by the Holy Spirit Uh, He believed all of that. Felix believed the message, but he declared to Paul, you got to give him credit for being honest, that he didn't have time for God at the moment. Uh, It was an inconvenient time for him now to give any consideration to this kind of thing and allow this kind of a change to occur uh, in his life. So the message was delivered. He believed the message. It just came to him at a really bad time uh, in his uh, his life. And the text, interestingly, gives us some indication of the reasons behind his procrastination, why he puts off uh, this decision. Number one, a love for sin and an unwillingness to repent of his sin uh, as yet. And it's the same kind of thing that uh, happens all over the world today. And it's perhaps, hopefully, doesn't happen in any of our hearts here in in this room and in the fellowship hall uh, this morning, whoever's streaming uh, the service uh, this morning. The, it's the same way uh, this kind of thing happens today when people believe in the gospel. They believe it to be absolutely true, uh, perhaps raised in the church or whatever, but they st- look at their life and they say, you know, there's still a lot of sin out there that I want to explore and I want to experience, but as soon as I've gotten that out of my system, you know, one day, uh, somewhere down the road, I will turn to God, but not right now. Uh, you've caught me with this message and handed me this gospel track at a, at a bad time. Another thing that keeps him away from doing the right thing here is greed, uh, love uh, of money, materialism. It certainly factored into his decision. Uh, he was greedy and, and uh, had a strong life-dominating 
<clears throat> love for greed, uh, not only before this gospel presentation, but even uh, subsequently. And, and this is all uh, nothing new under the sun. It's the same kind of thing that happens today where many convince themselves and, and uh, look at uh, the things of God and giving their life to God and trusting in Jesus for salvation and so forth. And that one day, yes, I'll do it. I'll give God his rightful place within my life. But after I get a good education, I get a high-paying job, I get the house that I want, I get married, I have children, or whatever the dreams might be that we, uh, materially speaking, physically speaking, that, that are on our list. Uh, and then ultimately, when I retire, uh, then I'll give some uh, thought to God. And that, that's another reason, a strong reason for people in procrastination. Verse 27 reveals Felix also to be a man who was clearly very, very concerned about what people might uh, think about him in the decision-making uh, 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 in his life. He should have released Paul immediately. He didn't out of a concern for how he would be viewed by the Jews. What would the Jews think of him if he not only uh, re released the apostle Paul, but then they found out that Paul had made uh, Felix a follower of Christ? And that would, what kind of complications would that bring into his life as the Roman governor of Jerusalem and uh, the southern part uh, of Israel? And this same kind of thing occurs today where many people refuse to become Christians out of a concern for what others are going to think of them. What will my mother or father think of me? What will my son or daughter, what will my peers, my husband, my wife, uh, my professional peers in life, my fellow students, my neighbors, what will uh, people think of me uh, if I make this uh, change in my life? Now, uh, there, one of the problems with this kind of procrastination, and there are a number of them, I won't exhaust the subject this morning, but one of the problems with this kind of procrastination, if you're considering it this morning, is that it assumes that there will always be a, a more convenient time today uh, than today to be saved. But the problem with that is that nobody is guaranteed uh, tomorrow. As the Apostle Paul uh, quoted the prophet Isaiah in writing to the church at Corinth, he said, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And today is the day of salvation, if for no other reason then, it is the only day we possess. It is the only day we have control over. We have no control over yesterday. That day is in our rearview mirror. We can't change that one iota. We have no guarantee we will see tomorrow or ever have a tomorrow. All we have at the moment, all we have is what we have uh, today. And to procrastinate concerning salvation is to take a really an insane risk when our eternity rests on the decision that we're going to make and decide that I will take and move that decision, the most important decision I'll make in life, I'll move it from the day that I have control over and move it off into a day that I'm not guaranteed uh, at all. And to do so in light of the fact of how fragile life can be. All you had to do was just watch a video of that uh, uh, Ohio State Fair 
a new ride that got launched, and we've all been on those rides, and you buckle in, and this is going to be the greatest thing ever, and who could possibly know that a ride like that could end in such a disaster for the people on it? And death comes quickly, and and it can come quickly, and the importance of making decision when Uh, in the time that we know that we have. We have no guarantee, and Felix did not either, that he would have another chance. A second problem with procrastination is that it assumes that you'll be able to accept the truth of the gospel with the same ease later uh, that you are here uh, this morning, and it's not true. Every single time a person says no to the gospel, to God's invitation of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, every time a person says no to that offer from God, that person must harden their heart in order to do so and to harden their heart against the conviction of the Holy Spirit in doing so. And then the next time the gospel offer is is made, then it is easier to say no. And the next time, even easier. And the next time, easier still. And it it goes on and on. And the danger is that ultimately the gospel has no effect upon a person at all. And then the person is tempted to think. I remember when I almost became a Christian I remember when I believed that, but I said no to it. And now years later of of saying, having said no to it now, it has no impact upon me. And we become convinced of the fact that now I'm far more sophisticated as a human being, far more intelligent as a human being. I'm so glad that I didn't put my faith in something so simple as the offer of that gospel and all. And all of these things that we convince ourselves of when what has actually happened within that person's life is they have hardened their heart against the gospel to where it now no longer has the power that it once had and in the the grieving of the Holy Spirit in, in all of it. Additionally, when a person says no to the truth of the gospel, a person will usually do that for a reason. And most often it's to continue in some kind of sin or to continue in a life of self-will. And whatever sin, whatever we say no to the gospel to in order to continue in a life of sin and self-will, that sin does not remain static. It doesn't stay where it is in terms of uh, its size and its dominance within our life. That sin and that selfishness will continue to grow and continue to grow and, and continue to increase its hold upon uh, our, uh, one's life, making it even harder uh, for uh, that person to uh, turn to God. And then there is the spiritual warfare dynamic in all of this illustrated in a famous old story of a meeting that occurred in hell between the devil and four of his uh, cohorts, demons, and concerning what kind of a new lie that they could come up with in order to trap people. One demon said, I have it. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. 
uh, Satan uh, rebuffed uh, the idea. He said that it'll never work. People can look around them and see that there is a God. The second angel chimed in and said, I'll go and I'll tell them there's no heaven. And Satan refused that idea as well, saying everybody knows there is life after death, and they want to go to heaven. A third demon declared, let's tell them that there's no hell. And the devil responded, no, conscience tells them their sins are going to be judged. We better have a better lie than that. And then quietly a fourth demon spoke, and he said, I think I've solved your problem. He said, I'll go to earth and tell everyone there's no hurry. And the devil declared, yes, that's the one. Uh, that's the one that will work. And I don't know that there is a greater lie of the devil that is more effective in the culture in which we live in is the idea that you can put this decision off. You have plenty of time. Uh, and to one day do that after you're done living the life that you want to live. Well, I think it's important, and I close with this this morning, very uh, interesting and instructive uh, concerning all of this this morning to uh, know something about uh, the remainder of Felix's and Drusilla's uh, life. Concerning Felix, not long after the events that are recorded here in chapter 24, uh, there was an outbreak of, of violence. A riot broke out uh, in the city of Caesarea between uh, the Gentiles and between the Jews. Uh, Felix put down the, uh, the rioting with a very, very brutal backlash against the Jews there. Thousands of Jews were killed or they were imprisoned or they had all of their wealth stripped away from them. A delegation of Jews recognizing this was a violation of Roman uh, law in terms of rule, they then went to Rome to lodge a complaint against Felix. And after this, after hearing this, uh, the Roman emperor then relieved Felix of his duties as a Roman uh, governor, and he was replaced then by uh, Festus, who comes on the scene now uh, in the narrative and it was only the influence of his brother Paulus that kept Felix from being executed by uh, the Roman emperor. And ultimately, Felix lost everything in life that he had denied Christ for. Concerning Drusilla, her end came uh, very, very unexpectedly. 21 years after the events that are recorded here, while uh, visiting in the city of Pompeii, uh, with her son Marcus, probably enjoying the shopping and the cafes and, and uh, all of the art of the city, the neighbor, neighboring mount erupted and released a great cloud of poisonous gas and ash that then uh, proceeded to flood down upon the city of Pompeii at a speed of over 100 miles an hour. It engulfed the entire city and Drusilla and her son Marcus with it. And the fascinating thing is that there's no biblical or historical record that a more convenient time came for either Felix or Drusilla. And that's their story. And how many times has their story been repeated through history if God wanted to record all of it for us? But it doesn't need to be your story. Are you waiting for a more convenient time to become a Christian? It will never come. 
it will never come. And I'll tell you why. Because the decision is not to be made on the basis of convenience, but rather on the basis of reason and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Is it so unreasonable that a perfect righteousness is required for heaven? Is it so unreasonable uh, God's assessment of each and every one of us is sinners? Is it so unreasonable that there will be a judgment at the end of this life for the life that we have lived and supremely for what we have done with God's offer of salvation? Paul didn't think that it was unreasonable. I certainly don't think it's unreasonable either, and I hope that you don't. Make today the day of your salvation. It is the only day you have and that you have control of. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins this morning so that God's will might be accomplished in your life. And the greatest and the number one item on God's uh, to-do list and desire list related to your life is that you would be saved and enter into a life of forgiveness and relationship with him. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for how those of us who are Christians here, how it has changed our life. We thank you for the miracle of your Holy Spirit, that when that message came at just the right time in our life, you gave power to it. And right from your throne, the ability for us to recognize that this is the truth about the life that I've lived. This is the truth about life to come, the truth about God and the truth about salvation. And Lord, we pray for that same work of your Holy Spirit in every man and every woman that stands in this room and in the fellowship hall and is within the, the reach of our voice and our service here this morning, and that not one person would procrastinate one more day concerning surrendering to you and entering into the salvation and the life that you have for them. We pray for that work of your spirit upon your word and upon your truth. We bless you as we close here this morning for how rich you have made us in Christ Jesus as your sons and daughters. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to pay the price that you did to do it. You did it, and we love you for it, and we thank you for it this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you have...